have a few chapters in there that lay out a kind of a theory of infectious disease, not my theory, but, but uh, others, and help just help people calm down, you know, about, about the idea of, of pandemics in general. You are listening to And If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to that great podcast in the sky, And If Love Remains. This is Mike Levitt, your sometimes virtuous, occasionally vile, but always virile host. And with your help, we will go viral by you doing that thing that you do. You know, subscribe, share, all that good stuff. Um, But I'm very excited today to have on the line uh, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He's been... Uh, with us a couple of times before. He is an author. He is the founder of the the Brownstone Institute, which we're going to get into. Um, I think uh, um, I think his latest book is is it still uh, uh, Liberty or Lockdown? Yeah, that's that's the most and that that now is coming upon two years ago. So the, the problem is that I uh, I've been thinking about putting out a new compilation, but uh, you know I write at least one article a day. And, right. you know, and I'm writing about everything. There's too many topics and I just haven't had time to think about what's the most important topic. And I, so I've just, I haven't bothered, uh, but. Well, I will say, I think it's still an important book today. Like I, uh, yeah. first of all, it really ch- made me think about some of the, um, some of the aspects of the lockdown, some of the aspects of COVID that I hadn't thought about. So I, I think it's right. a really important book. Um, and well, you were at yeah. the front end of it. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I actually agree with you that the, the book is kind of uh, important in the sense that it came out, uh, really, it came out in September 2020, and it has all the important information, it has all the original data about the the um, the the demographics of of, of uh, vulnerability from uh, from the SARS-CoV-2 and what everybody knew from January and February, you know, it goes back 15 years and discusses the lockdown models and where they came from. It discusses the, uh, pandemic modeling, uh, statistical models and why they're all, why they're all wrong. The history of infectious disease and, and the U S response to past pandemics was, 2009 or 2003, 68, 69, 57, 58. And I go all the way back, and I think even have some discussion in 1918. And, and you know, just really makes the argument, I think, very well that, um, that the solution was not to muscle people and bully people, much less, you know, close businesses and that sort of thing, but rather to use science and intelligence and to, to, to manage, manage our way through the, the pandemic. Uh, in the meantime, there's been a lot of new information come out, of course. I mean, that's all we do is discover right. new information about this whole thing. So there's, there's a lot of information missing from the book, but the basic, the basic understanding was correct. I also have a few chapters in there that lay out a kind of a theory of infectious disease, not my theory, but, but uh, others. And help just help people calm down you know about about the idea of, of pandemics in general i mean pandemics are not 
infectious disease in general is is far from being you know the world's most important problem. In fact, it's in in all of human history, has never been <clears throat> less uh, uh, important for uh, human thriving, partially because we have better immune systems than we've ever ever had, at least until recently. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but you know, there's many ways in which what what happened to us over the last three and a half years now, almost three and a half years, is that they they took uh, what might have been a, a bad flu year, might have been that. We're still unclear about the data, by the way, uh, and turn it into a real disaster. I mean, yeah. it, they really, uh, uh, they created an immense health crisis and a mental health crisis and real health crisis. I don't know if you saw the, the statistics on obesity that just came out from 2021 show the largest increase. We're up to 35% of the U.S. population, largest increase ever on record. And, you know, depression, 40% of the American public reports being depressed. I mean, we saw uh, waves of suicide over the course of uh, the last three years and uh, uh, just degraded immune systems and, 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 and the shots themselves, you know, uh, had all the problems that you associated with, with, uh, with trying to vaccinate your way out of a coronavirus pandemic, uh, which is that we have the immune dependency associated with the shots. So it might, it might rewire your immune system. And then especially getting repeated doses for right. for a strain that was already uh, deprecated and no longer in circulation it was one of the most bizarre experiences. So my book does not cover the vaccine at all. So that's mm -hmm. that's and and in a sense uh, that's uh, bad in the in the sense that you you might want to have coverage of that. We cover that every day on Brownstone. On the other hand, it's good because one of the lines used about people who hold my views towards this pandemic thing is we're all anti-vaxxers. Well, okay. Well, there was no vaccine uh, uh, available uh, right. uh, you know, when my book came out. It's entirely focused on, on lockdowns and closures and mitigation measures, that course of mitigation measures. So, Well, and all of the evidence that, that has been coming out really and reinforces the the principles that that you talked about and and even the principles that that and, and I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that that you I, I like to call you the facilitator I don't know a better word to say it but of the great Barrington declaration sure. um, I think that was a just a, a wonderful thing and an important an important thing because it, it re um, reemphasized good classical, uh, a medical science yep. of, of what we should do during a pandemic. Um, and, and it was ignored at best. It, it, well, they tried to ignore it. And then, and then they, it was people just, it was the, the, the doctors that have been, that signed that thing have, um, been silenced in many cases. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it, it was it's terrible. a remarkable document in the sense that it didn't say anything particularly, uh, unusual. It didn't say anything radical at all. It said, what everybody knew, a year earlier, you know, and it was just mm -hmm. a plain statement of public health, like don't make things worse, right? In the, in the midst of pandemic. doctor, do no harm. <laughs> yeah, that's all it, it basically said, and and that uh, vulnerable people should be aware of the uh, potential dangers uh, and conduct conduct their lives accordingly. Um, uh, by the way, nowhere called for the elder be elderly to be locked down. So this is, I, I find, I find the spin, 
you know, about this document to be just incredible. First of all, they said the document was let it rip. Well, I don't, there is no epidemiological theory called let it rip. Okay, so that, that didn't exist. And, and let it rip implies that we're not going to use intelligence and rationality, which is ridiculous. Obviously, um, the, our holidays are structured around the idea of using, you know, uh, using intelligence and rationality during the flu season. I mean, you know, the human life's been around for a long time, and we've learned how to deal with infectious disease, and, and there's even things that we we do ourselves that uh, we don't even know why we do them, but that are designed to kind of uh, make us as healthy as possible. So it's, it would, like elderly people usually know when the flu season arrives, which is usually a winter uh, thing, right. and they know uh, to stay away from mass gatherings uh because they're more vulnerable and they hunker down you know with family and family gatherings and that sort of thing so i mean that would just be the the typical uh approach that human beings have used so that's that's not let it rip that's they're using intelligence and then sure enough as soon as that was was over now then they started claiming that the great Barrington declaration was a lockdown for elderly people which I mean, it specifically says, I think it's this, the last sentence of the declaration says elderly people should, you know, should protect themselves uh, or engage, you know, with the community as they discern their own personal risk. So it was, the, the whole idea of the document is that we should just have, you know, basic freedoms. And, uh, it, it, the remarkable thing is that that document uh, broke through the information barriers that were already being built up at the time. Um, the censorship began almost immediately from from March of 2020, and several several doctors groups and scientists groups had tried to make statements and hold conferences and protests, but they hadn't gotten through. Looking back at it now. Uh, I think the the key success or the reason why the Great Barrington Declaration came to such public attention uh, was unusual. Uh, we did not use a third party uh, platform for distribution, and actually, I think right. that's the whole answer. If we had relied on LinkedIn, it would have gotten taken down. In fact, it did get taken down. Uh, God knows, you know, Zuckerberg's uh, platform it would have removed it. YouTube. Uh, but even me medium.com was uh, was deleting posts in those days. I don't think Substack existed in those days. But Medium was deleting posts. Um, Eventbrite was canceling events. I, I'm not sure I can think of a single platform where it could have been distributed. If you'd use Scribd or any of the other you know big document uh, uh, hosts, uh, it would have gotten removed. Right. Uh, uh, so what we did was one thing is we never announced that we were going to do it. So in fact, in fact, we didn't even know we were going to do it forty-eight hours before its release. I mean, that's how. Wow. Quick yeah, that's how quick. So, you know, what happened is that the scientists got, you know, gathered in a single space in order to provide a, a small educational uh, setting for for journalists because they were very frustrated that journalists had no idea what they were talking about. Well, the journalists didn't really show up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, I what had are we going to do with this time? <laughs> yeah, and so it's like, well, let's let's write a uh, an open letter of some sort. So, and that was, I think, as late as Saturday. Saturday afternoon. We gathered on Friday. It was Saturday afternoon. It's like, okay, that's right. So they wrote it. And then um, 
and it was completed, I think, on Sunday. And then uh, Louisman, who's the webmaster for Brownstone now, uh, uh, I, you know, we what we did is we bought a domain called gbdeclaration.org, and then installed a a WordPress template, built the site. Uh, we couldn't build it uh, in a, a foolproof way because you know the scientists wanted signatures, regular people sign it, so. Right. So we hadn't even had time to test out the the the, the signatures yet. We, so initially, we decided if you if you if you want to sign it, to sign it. You know that's why. So, uh, uh, and oh, oh, and he stayed up all night. And then it was because because the scientist had a had arranged a an, an a live interview the next morning in the UK. So with Jeff's Jeffrey. Sayers, I think his name is of uh, Unheard. So they said, "Oh, can we get get the uh, the the thing ready by the morning?" So that meant that that the webmaster had to stay up all night and put put together all the sign up tools and the graphics and the declaration itself. It really had to build this thing just in in extraordinary Record time. time. Record yeah. time. And so we released it, and. Yeah, it went crazy. Suddenly, the site had you know millions of views. You know, it was relying on certain accounts, and also there have been all the dissidents have been suppressed. You know, for months and months and months, and so finally seeing this 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 thing out there was you know a breath of fresh air. So uh, the attempts at su- subversion were were immediate, and and we know who did it. There were people that were just signing the document with crazy names like Johnny Bananas or Doctor you know Doctor Wacko and that kind of stuff, and they. And then they would they would screenshot the results and and put them out on Twitter. And so they were openly admitting that. And right. the, the idea was to the idea was to tell the world, well, um, nobody really favors these ideas. The, the, all these signatures are fake. Look, I I I signed my myself signed it with a fake name like that. So, uh, but the only people that actually signed it with fake names were the people that were against the document and were trying to destroy it. I mean, and they were openly admitting this. So it was just quite extraordinary. So it took us another three or four days to kind of uh, put in place all the 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 um, the checks, you know. So um, the medical doctors had to, you know, sign it. And you didn't want to, like, and also these were times where people were being canceled. So it was a difficult problem for us, you know. Do you, right. Uh, you know, we're not going to be asking for people's, you know, uh, driver's license and passports, you know. But so we just put people through a series of, of uh, questions. But anyway, it ended up getting in the end about about a million signatures. And it was funny. I'm sorry, I'm talking to Bud, but I'll tell you really quickly. Yeah. Before the document came out, um, well, we signed the thing and the site wasn't built. And it was just funny. It's a, my whole life has been in digital media, right? So I, I sort of know that the presentation of something can make or break its, its very existence. You know, I mean, you can, you can hold a cocktail party and everything can go really well. But if you want to stream the cocktail party to the world, you've got another problem. So they wanted to stream the stream the cocktail party to the whole world, and but but uh, none of these scientists had ever done anything like this. So uh, so after they signed the document, there was a great sense of of triumph in the room, like this was done. And I remember standing there thinking, "Well, I wouldn't say this is done. <laughs> you know, there's right. still the actual thing we have to do." But they, you know, they're 
that's not really their world. And Jay Bhattacharya said to me, he goes, you know what? Once we release this on the internet, this is the way they, they think, oh, you just release something on the internet. Well, it's a little more, right. <laughs> a little more complicated than that. Uh, once we release it on the internet, it'll get a million signatures. And I remember kind of choking on my champagne and going, if we get a million signatures, we're going to have other problems. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. I, it is. Yeah. <laughs> know your lane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's incredible. That's a great story. And, and you still feel the, re, you know, I, even just yesterday, I heard somebody reference the Great Barrington Declaration um, wow. as, as, as something that has been proven out to be true, okay. you know, and, and something that, that, um, you know, and this is, this is one of the things I wanted to chat with you about, you know, as, as we kind of do a postmortem on, on COVID, um, it, it, it seems to me like all, all of the evidence is pointing to, they lied to us on, at every, at, at every stage of it. Um, the vaccines they knew were not, um, going to be helpful at all. Uh, it was a racket from the beginning. Um, and that, it, it, that the COVID was just an excuse to, to, uh, violate our rights and, and, um, do whatever they can to, to obtain control over, you know, institutions and people. That sounds right to me. I, 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 I didn't, it took me a very long time to figure out the role of the vaccines in this whole caper. Cause I, I thought from the beginning, so my attitude toward the vaccine was, of course, you cannot vaccinate against a, a quick, mut, mut, quickly mutating respiratory virus. That's ridiculous. We know that. Every textbook said that. I mean, they've been trying to make... So here's the thing. Vaccines work against really stable pathogens. Uh, they still have their, their dangers and their risks, but you can stop polio. You can stop chickenpox. You know, you can uh, stop measles. Um, obviously, smallpox is eradicated. And, that, and that's because the, the virus itself is very stable. It doesn't change quickly. We know what it's going to look like. That's right. Okay. But there are other, there are other viruses that, that are always mutating. Uh, you know, malaria is a, is a classic case. Or, or the, the annual flu. Right. I mean, there's so many strains of these things and scientists don't know, virologists don't know what the next strain is going to be. So when they come up with the next flu vaccine, they have to just kind of guess. And sometimes they, they get it uh, more right than wrong. And a lot of times, most of the time, they get it more wrong than right. And that's just sort of the way it is. So the, the annual flu has a kind of, uh, um, has a wardrobe with, let's say, let's say like 16 possible, you know, um, uh, suits, you know, or shirts and pants. Um, but something like, like, like polio or smallpox or chickenpox or measles, rubella, whatever, just has one change of clothes. So it's very easy to take a sample, live, live dead sample of that and, and, and give it to you and train your, your body to, to resist it based on the idea that the exposure has already been there. So that, that works. But, but a coronavirus is is not that um, you know uh, the common cold is you know uh, 
of half the common colds are coronaviruses. So this is one species of 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 a of the same thing that creates a common cold. There's no vaccine against common cold. I mean, there's some some things you can't stop. So but I knew this going into it. So when they claimed they had a vaccine, I thought. So what I believed was that this is just an opportunistic um, profit profit making companies that were responding to a crisis. And that the that the reason why people were going along and pretending as if this thing was going to be great was because we needed some end game. We needed some way to get out of lockdowns uh, mm-hmm. because this is the problem with lockdowns. I mean, the, the lockdowns happened and nobody had a theory about you know, what we were achieving with the lockdowns. What happens right. when you open up? How long the lockdown? I mean, do you really think that a virus is going to be scared of a press conference? <laughs> right. Um, or or a plexiglass shield. I mean, the, the whole thing was nutty, and I knew this from the beginning, so I figured that the vaccine was going to be used as a sort of an exit ramp. Well, that didn't quite happen, you know. Um, uh, I mean, we were still locked down, you know, once the vaccine came out, and that came out two weeks after the November election. And then next thing you know, we still had to stay locked down, socially distanced, and have travel restrictions and keep the businesses closed, the schools closed and everything, until 70 or 80 or 90% of the population was vaccinated, which which also didn't make any sense because, uh, you know, there was a, only 5% of the population was actually vulnerable to any kind of severe, me- medically severe outcomes from, from this virus. So it didn't make any sense. Uh, why would you need to vaccinate the entire population uh, in, a, in a phony baloney attempted eradication? The, the most you could ever get to is endemicity, which is to say it circulates in a manageable way, same as a flu virus or a common cold. That's what we call herd immunity, which does not is not the same thing as eradication. Herd immunity just means it's it's uh, that that enough people have been exposed that the virus is not a sort of going concern and. And the people, uh, and that not everybody has to get it uh, because the virus stops finding people that are vulnerable to it because there's immunity so widespread. The way we got to herd immunity and endemicity was not through the vaccine. It was through exposure. Right. It's really that, Omicron that, that did that, right? Yeah. I mean, when, that, that, when that one hit, it spread like wildfire and got yeah. everybody the virus. That's right. So, you know, that's the thing. And again, this is nothing new, but we've always known that there's this very interesting dynamic that works with these viruses. Uh, the the more, the less lethal they are, the more they spread. Be, and so the virus is always looking for a host. So the really intelligent viruses are not are not dangerous. It's the stupid viruses that are, are, dumb, are, 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 are deadly uh, because when you kill the host, you, you know, the virus dies. And so the, a smart virus wants to annoy you, but not kill you. And so Omicron is very intelligent in that sense, you know. So yeah, it 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 it, it so it it was just an an annoyance at that point, but but it it spread all over the place. And some people got it two or three times uh, because of the mutations. And and the other thing is that that. You know, our immune systems rely on kind of constant, ongoing, regular exposure and to to pathogens in the world. So, if you lock down the entire population, keep people uh, in their bedrooms, in their in their apartments for six months or a year, and and don't let them go to, to parties, gatherings, malls, or get close to anybody else, your immune system's g- going to degrade. 
So by the time the exposure came along, uh, people needed a lot more exposure than just one time experience with with the disease. They needed, you know, they, they, they ended up, the mutations were happening so quickly that people got it several times. The, the vaccine, it turns out empirically to have made people far more vulnerable to getting uh, repeat infections. So that, you know, so it had the, the negative <laughs> efficacy. None of this I could have anticipated. That, that part was a, was a shock to me. Yeah. I never, I never really expected the vaccine to be dangerous or negatively efficacious. I, I always assumed it was going to be, not it would not work to right. stop the spread or stop the infection. But I didn't expect that it would actually, like the vaccine, would be more likely to be infected. And I certainly yeah. didn't expect the uh, astonishing. Uh, amounts of adverse events that happen from from the thing, oh so. yeah, but now looking back, I'm I, what I've I've changed my mind about a lot of things. I I realize now uh, that the vaccine companies were were there from the very beginning, even from January of 2020, and that a lot of the sort of lockdown was um, inspired and pushed by the companies themselves. Was that? Would you think there was? It was pushed to they keep the virus in a state, or I mean, I could see like if, if you're an evil pharmaceutical company and you want to, you want the the vaccine to be the only um, remedy, if you will, then yeah, you would want to lock people down to keep the virus, you know, almost in the status state, and then yeah. and then you bring out the your your uh, your medicine, the you know your vaccine, right? Um, and and I mean, you, do. You, you, you deprecate and put down any other alternative treatments, right? So right. We've, had, we've had decades of, of experiences, <laughs> centuries, with respiratory viruses and doctors know how to treat them. So you have to guard against uh, secondary infections, for example, with, with antibiotics. Um, uh, you, can, you can deal with some of the most uh, dreadful symptoms associated with uh, uh, you know, the infection with uh, prednisone and, and some other steroids. Um, uh, the, the hydroxychloroquine and... and uh, uh, Ivermectin? Ivermectin. Are both have uh, antiparasitical and antivirals, and we have tremendous evidence that they did great good for, the, for these two things. So that all those things were taken off the market. And the incredible thing, they were, this was as early as, sorry to get conspiratorial, but the attacks on these, on these uh, repurposed generics began in December of, of oh. 2019. I, I see, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize it happened that early. Wow. Cause, cause you know, I was shocked when, when my governor, you know, made it illegal to, to get ivermectin or hydro, hydroxychloroquine. And I, I just thought, yeah. you know, what, what kind of doctor are you to make that kind of decision on, as an executive of the state? That makes no sense. Yeah, you know? the idea was to test this new mRNA technology, which they only got approved through emergency use authorization. Uh, from a legislative uh, and legal point of view, you cannot issue an EUA unless there really is an emergency. And part of that emergency involves there's no other solutions. So, of course, they mm. had to take all the other solutions off the market. Right. And, and, and astoundingly, um, 
the uh, doxycycline, you know, an- antibiotic, antibiotic issue is, is by itself just a, a, a tremendous, tremendously fascinating thing. Over the course of 2020, we saw a, a 50% decline in uh, prescription antibiotics. Now, in the middle of a pandemic, prescription antibiotics falls by 50%. Why might this be true? Well, because people were not going to the doctor. And doctors weren't prescribing it, so both. And then it also turns out that 40% of the uh, deaths uh, uh, throughout the spring and summer and fall in the first year of the pandemic resulted from secondary uh, infections that could have been easily fixed with antibiotics. Antibiotics. So, and a lot of the secondary infections were imposed because of the initial protocols of dealing with the sick uh, uh, it was was all about intubation and mm-hmm. putting people on ventilators. The reason for the ventilators was that so that we, you know what happened is everybody you know got panicked like oh my god I think I'm feeling sick I'll go to the doctor. Well, if they tested positive for COVID, everybody in the hospital would panic, and basically their goal was to stop you from breathing. Externally, so they wheeled you into a room and 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 shoved a breathing tube down you in intubation, so you breathe into a machine so that you wouldn't infect the the air, so you wouldn't get COVID in the air, basically. Wow! And so that was the reason for all the all the ventilation, and this kills you know seventy eighty percent of the people who get it because it's, it's it absolutely destroys your lungs and the people and if you survive that. Then of course you're going to have a, an immense infection, right? Uh, which you could probably cure with antibiotics if you understood what was going on. But the chaos was so, you know, so much of the people were not being prescribed antibiotics. So, just like in 2000, uh, I'm sorry, in 1918, uh, a vast number of deaths from COVID in the in the most severe uh, period of of the wild type and Delta resulted from secondary infections. I mean, a hundred years later, more than a hundred years later, we repeated the same errors. Now, in 1918, they didn't have antibiotics. Right. So that's understandable. In 2020, we did. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that kind of takes me to another point that, that you were the one that kind of pointed out to me that I didn't realize, um, both in your book and, and when I had you on the podcast before. Where that, that, and, and you mentioned it in, in an article you wrote. Um, about 20 grim realities unearthed by, by the pandemic. It's a really great article. I'm going to go ahead and, and link that. Um, okay. But, but one of them was um, the, the, the inequality of how the disease affected people. In other words, like how the poor, the underclass, how these people were the ones that took the brunt and, oh, yeah. and 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 it was just an awful situation for them and 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 basically those those of us who were privileged those those who um you know who who were able to work from home through Skype or whatever um Zoom those of us who um you know ha- were had the facilities to be able to to see you know maybe had a friend who was a doctor or something had some sort of resources you know, we were fine, but it was really the, the the poor and the underclass that bore the brunt of this disease. I didn't, I didn't, before all this, I, I don't think I had a consciousness of, of wealth stratification and, and what that meant for, 
for social structures. I, I, I really didn't understand and, and political and, and political um, outcomes and things. I, did, I, don't, I think as a kind of old-fashioned liberal, uh, I always thought the class was, was something that people obsessed about if they're up to no good, you know? Uh, oh, class conflict, you know, and I just never really cared. Even wealth inequalities never really bothered me. I was like, well, so what? Some people are rich, you know? Let's have a kind of society where everybody can get rich. I was very naive about this. Well, it turned out once you got about a third of the American public, including, of course, the whole of the ruling class, in a position uh, to be able to accomplish their, or at least fake work, uh, accomplish their tasks from, from the safety of their own homes by looking at screens, you know, you had no more resistance to the idea of lockdowns. I mean, it was, it was, and I'm always so intrigued by this because the, the initial plans involved dividing the entire uh, industrial structure and workforce into what they considered essential and unessential. And, right. look, and th- that was the uh, cyber, cyber, uh, cyber Information Infrastructure Security Agency, whatever, CISA uh, did this. And if you look at what they did, they were trying to figure out you know, what is essential and what is not essential. So what they decided was not essential were things like concerts and uh, haircuts and churches and and gatherings and bowling and sports events. Funerals. Basically, anything that's fun, right? Anything right. that's fun or religious or, you know, whatever. That was out of the question. So, what was essential? And you got to just got to imagine these ruling class idiots sitting around trying to figure out what. Well, what what do we really need? You know. Well, they imagine themselves sitting at home. They're like, well, okay, definitely need the lights working, right? <laughs> and need the plumbing working. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't want to like flush and have no water come out. That would be not good. And oh, we need we need the food. We need food. So where can we get the food? Well. Uh, let's, just don't worry about the weird, uh, small, small grocer down the street. Everybody can get their food from, from the large, large chains. And, and probably if something breaks in my house, it would probably need to be fixed. We probably need hardware stores and that sort of thing to open. So this is the way they literally did it. So this is entirely a sort of a ruling class bias. So they, they didn't care about, I mean, so what they did was they created a structure in which the elites the, the highest elites, government, media, technology, and white-collar industries and that sort of thing, uh, could continue to, to work. Uh, they were considered essential. And then also essential were the, were the working class people who served them. Mm-hmm. So, so right. drove the tr- trucks to the store, got the, got the groceries there, dropped off the groceries at the front door, and so, and so on. So th- they literally, this is the way they imagined the society working. But everybody else in the middle was just completely out, you know. Wow. So yeah. the idea is like, let's put the working classes and the poor, the working poor and the people on wages instead of salaries in front of the virus. Now, I, I'm not sure that anybody like intentionally, ble- but there is a long history of strat of, cult- of, of class stratified societies that that make the the poorest members confront the new pathogen and bear the the bulk of the uh, burden of of herd immunity. 
And that seemed to be what was going on for a large part of 2020. It's like, let's get them, let's let them get sick and then we'll stay, then we'll stay clean and, and healthy. Nice. <laughs> clean, clean and pure. Yeah. Clean and pure. <laughs> so that was it, right? And wow. I, it was just an amazing unfolding. And, you know, every day the New York Times would just instruct its readers, you know, stay home, get your groceries delivered. And nowhere was there a consciousness on the part of the New York Times. You know, they never said deliver groceries. Right, right. <laughs> they said get your groceries yes. delivered. By the way, and it's it's funny to me because um, in some ways, if they would have delivered groceries, they would have been better off because they would have been outside. In fact, it, yeah. I have a, um, I occasionally do. Um, I, I I'm a musician, I, and I play a gig for the for the homeless every once in a while. It's a uh-huh. really wonderful thing. But um, my point is, um, this group had done co- was was one of the first groups to do COVID tests for the homeless, right? And you know the homeless have issues they, you know they're they're they have comorbidities we shall say i mean there's a lot of stuff going on but when they did covid tests but they're also outside all the time um they're amongst themselves all the time they did i think um you know 200 or 500 tests something in that range zero covid positives mm-hmm. zero mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so you know, and you think about that, you think about the, you know, the Amish and how they handled it, mm-hmm. you know, and how there's literally no, no COVID among that, their people. Yeah. Well, COVID um, wasn't even a thing in Africa. Right. Until we started vaccinating them. <laughs> yeah. So vitamin, vitamin D, uh, lots of exposure uh, to pathogens, a lot of outdoor activities and that sort of thing. Yeah. That's, that's how you protect yourself from, from COVID. So, and by the way, this is also very typical in, in history that, the elites that protect themselves turn out to be more, more vulnerable to disease than, than everybody else. Hmm. Yeah. The, the history of polio in that respect is really interesting because really it's selected for uh, severe outcomes from polio. So we're highly selected uh, toward uh, elites uh, and, and the, and the well-to-do. Wow. And that was I don't because think I knew that. Yeah, and it was because they have uh, less robust uh, immunological profiles than the rest of the population. It's typical that wealthy mm-hmm. people imagine themselves to be a, a, a clean and above it all. So, you, you know, you get germophobia uh, among the, the very wealthy. Uh, right. I mean, the poor can't afford to be germophobes. It's, it's not a thing. Uh, so polio... Um, selected uh it was heavily selected towards the the well-to-do which is if you think back to the pictures of who the polio victims are i mean they, they always showed uh little girls in and lace lace dresses with their hair right. pinned up in and tiaras and things in front of gilded mirrors with braces on their legs it's like wow so the the messaging was anyone could get polio even this this rich kid right wow well, the the actual reality was that it was basically the rich kids getting polio and th- with severe outcomes yeah and it also happened to be the very first disease that in in american history anyway that experienced a sort of a, a mass market of of philanthropy i mean that's so the polio campaigns of the 1940s you know went went viral they were you know in, in every newspaper and then that's 
and and asking people for contributions to stop this dreadful uh, plague. And that's, you know, of course, that that led to the, the March of Dimes, which is the first real infectious disease, large-scale infectious disease philanthropy. And the reason for that is that it was mainly a disease of the rich. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense <laughs> that makes so much sense wow we got to get rid we got to get rid of this because it's affecting us <laughs> so it's pretty wow. weird right i mean you you learn a lot through the history of uh, infectious disease it uh, tells you wow. a lot about the social social structures right right well, tell, okay, one of the things, another thing that you mentioned in your article that I, I wanted to touch on is you, you talk about the spinelessness of religious uh, churches and, and things. And, and I was, that was one thing that, that shocked me because I always imagined if there was uh, any bolster against uh, the government, it should have been the churches. This mm-hmm. this this institution that supposedly has a higher authority than even the government mm-hmm. could, could be one entity that stands between us and the government. And says, "No, we are going to gather. No, we, this is important." Yeah. And, and they just didn't. Yeah, uh, Holy Week was canceled uh, by, by in Rome. I mean, they canceled Holy Week. That's in, insane in Rome. The, the Catholic Church, and so the Catholics were were one of the worst about COVID, and I I could not understand it even at the time. I thought you you would think that if you're the Catholic Church, you would have been waiting for an opportunity to say, no, we must worship God, and governments can't tell us what to do. You think that would be a perfect right. opportunity, uh, but they didn't. And I asked a, a good priest friend of mine who was railing against me. I said, well, you know, why do you suppose this happened? He had a very interesting observation. He said. It all stems from sort of the the replacement uh, within Catholic circles going going back many decades now of of um, moral ferocity about about fundamental human rights, uh, replacing it with a kind of a, a a murky concern for social justice and um, and a, a just sort of an emotive. Uh, uh, desire to to do good, do good for others. I mean that that seems to have uh, been a pervasive intellectual habit among Catholics for going back many decades now. And he said what what happened was that the Covidians, the lockdowners, and these kinds of people captured the moral high ground early on. So you're doing the right thing by staying home. You're doing the right thing by 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 not gathering. The people who are going to church are selfish, and so on. So the the Catholic hierarchy internalized this this uh, this moral belief structure, and the and and said, "Oh, okay, our religion is about service to others and society." The media is saying that the way to do that is to cancel church, so that's what we're going to do. That basically that's wow. why you sum it up. Yeah. So that's why they looked at. It. So the people, the religions that didn't go along with this was um, Orthodox, uh, hardcore Orthodox Hasidic Jewry and and New York. They continued mm-hmm. to to meet and have funerals like and weddings and everything else like everybody else. And uh, and then of course the Amish, you know, paid right. no, no attention whatsoever. And then and then some fundamentalist Mormon. Uh, communities in in Utah uh, wouldn't go along. So, in other words, it was the kind of the the sort of the more hardcore religions, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, interesting, <laughs> and also the ones that that you know surprisingly did 
fairly well health wise. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were a you lot know, of problems uh, among the uh, Hasidim, but uh, they were also the very first to try out uh, the alternative treatments. I mean, these repurposed generics, you know, hydroxychloroquine and you know, and zinc, and you know, recognizing that we need to up our vitamin D levels and and this sort of thing. I mean, they, all those. All the early treatment protocols for COVID you know, grew out of the Hasidic uh, experience because um, they were trying to live normal lives. So they they figured out how to treat this, you know, uh, yeah. before any before anybody else. I mean, NIH was completely ignoring issues of treatments. They didn't care. Wow. Um, let's talk a little bit. I want I want to um, take a few minutes and chat about the the Brownstone Institute, the institute that you founded, um, and. I was excited to, to know about it because um, <clears throat> it's one of the few, if not the, if not if not the only um, institution think tank, if you will, that I know of that was specifically um, founded in uh, reaction to COVID. In other mm-hmm. words, it was it was my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is that you set this up specifically to to figure out. Uh-huh. how and influence the, the COVID response. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, well, so I've used, so Brownstone was was, was founded to use a realistic um, lens of what happened to us over the last, uh, from, from 2020 onwards, to understand what's right and wrong about the world and how to, and, and how to fix it. So what I did was I assembled a, a kind of a community of researchers and, and writers who have been really on top of this, uh, most of them, from, you know, from the very beginning. And uh, it's become uh, really important. Now, look, a lot of people just want to ignore what happened. A lot of people wanted to defend everything that happened. There's not that many of us out there who are willing to, you know, say, let's, let's, let's look realistically and figure out the facts of the case and, and ask fundamental questions about the structures of our Media attack, uh, government, and uh, social and society in general that that caused something like this to happen, and and try to find solutions, and also be on the lookout when we see uh, similar sort of lockdown paradigms being applied to uh, to other subjects. So that so that's the purpose of Brownstone. You're right. I think as far as I know, it's the only one in the United States. So there's one in Israel uh, that does something similar, but um, uh, uh, but. Yeah, it's kind of kind of unique in that in that way, and and so we've got the market covered. A lot of research institutes just want to ignore it, and uh, and the reason they want to ignore it is that they weren't there for us when we needed them. They, a lot of these research institutes just hunkered down, you know, or were right. on the wrong side. Well, you mentioned that in your article too about about the how the think tanks just you know disappeared on us completely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our intellectual leadership just completely. Flaked out, dropped uh, the ball. Yeah. Well, part of the part of the thing was that at the time was that they're screaming at you that you couldn't have anything to say about the subject unless you were an epidemiologist. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was actually funny, like how ex- extremely sort of credentialized everything became because uh, I mean they were denouncing Scott Atlas, this uh, uh, public public health uh, scientist from Stanford. Um, in Hoover Institution, as having you know a training, not have he didn't have epidemiological training. Okay, so well, wait a minute. He's a you know he's a public public health scientist. You know, with right. vast training and and he wrote the, the a main medical textbook on 
I forget now what medical field. Um, but they're saying, oh, well, he can't talk about this. He's not an epidemiologist. So you could you could be an immunologist, a virologist, but if you're not an epidemiologist, then you don't have any right to talk about it. So, yeah, you can imagine what it was like to be in a think tank in Washington and say be an economist or be an education specialist right. or a foreign policy <laughs> expert. Well, you sure as hell should have nothing to say about this. That's the way it works. It's so creepy, right? It's like the, so the media is like, okay, here's a new crisis, but there's only one kind of particular sort of expert we're going to allow to tell us what to think on this. You know, <laughs> you know, and it's it's exactly, and it's funny to me, and um, like this is where somebody like like Joe Rogan, I I just <laughs> he. Just I just appreciated th- that moment in, in his show when I forget the guy's name, but the CNN doctor, whatever, you know, is, is asking them, talking about ivermectin and, and his how he dealt with COVID and um, how it's horse pace. And and, you know, oh, Rogan's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and Rogan's like, hey, I I can I can afford people medicine, UMF. <laughs> like he's just like, what are you talking about? Like, like, stop trying to um, completely. Um, gaslight the entire American people on this. You know, it's, you can't be like, you know, it just, it just, to me, it's stuff like that where it's, it's just, it opens up the, your eyes to saying this whole thing is nothing but one, one big gaslight campaign. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly was. I mean, it was amazing. And, you know, we're going through something similar now with the, with the climate thing in the last 48 hours, everybody's screaming out, oh, the world's baking under, you know, climate change. And, and the only people allowed to to address it are climatologists, right? So it's right. Like, so you know we keep cycling through these weird little sectors, you know. Yeah. And 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 it turns out most of the people in that sector, I can speak to the epidemiological case. I don't know that much about the climatologists, but the epidemiologists were largely captured, you know, uh, you know, over the previous fifteen years, mostly by by f- pharmaceutical. Money, the you know, pharmaceutical funds pays the journals, it pays their conferences, it pays their salaries, it pays their grants. When I and and sometimes not directly, but um, but if you get a grant from the NIH, that you know that's also being funded by the pharmaceutical companies. So everybody's on the payroll. It sounds like conspiracy theory, but you look at it from careerism. I'm, that's another thing. I'm not sure if I mentioned that in the article, but I've just been overwhelmed. It just you know, careerism as a motivation for whether and to what extent people are willing to say what's true and take take risks is is just absolutely debilitating individual by individual and the, and then for the whole societies right as long as people are just protecting their careers i mean you can yeah I mean, you can experience it a, perpetuates the lie yeah you can have a decline and fall of rome just just yeah. because because everybody's you know, protecting their 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 flow of funds from their from their p- position, and it's strange to me because a lot of the most high end uh, jobs that you can have are also the most I would say, like in economic terms, considered like non fungible. So if you're a uh, a full professor, tenured professor at Yale, you think, well, that guy can tell the truth. I mean, nobody can touch that guy, right? But, but actually, oh, have I lost you? Actually, no, no, I'm here. Okay, um, but but actually, that guy, if he loses that job, is got nowhere to go but but down. I mean, he's he's worried. He believes he'll be working at Chick Fil A, you know. 
Uh, on the other hand, if you if you're if you're a, a cosmetologist or you're you're cutting hair, you can always say "screw you" to the boss and walk down the street and get a job at the next place. So you're far more likely to hear true things from your barber than you are from a professor at at, at the Ivy League University. Right, and that and that is, yeah, that that's that's absolutely true. Um, I, the other thing that, that I really appreciate about what you're doing at Brownstone is, is the application because first of all, there's not enough of this kind of postmortem going around where we're talking about like what happened, what we learned or what we, what was revealed, even if we didn't learn anything, at least we know the things that were revealed. Um, and also, um, the, the the application to because because the next you know the next day you mentioned client the climate crisis you right. know the the crisis in Ukraine the, I mean there's going to be the next thing right and I think that application is really important uh, it's always going to be something and it could be something something next time I mean sometimes I wonder if you know if uh, there's a card file somewhere that 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 powerful people have been sort of thumbing through for several millennia, you know, and one of them says, let's tell everybody the devil's on the loose. Another one says the real problem is witchcraft. And the other one says, well, the real problem is Protestants or the other problem is people don't believe in transubstantiation. And they kind of keep cycling through these cultural memes, you know, depending on what can alarm the public. Oh, now we've got the Kaiser is a problem. Oh, now it's the Mormons. Actually, it's the communists, you know. I mean, you can <laughs> Right, right. What's going to be the hobgoblin today? Well, infectious disease had not, I think the last time infectious disease had panicked the population was in in, uh, the mid-1980s with the AIDS crisis. Um, That that was kind of a a big deal. There was, uh, Fauci was behind that one too. And people did uh, panic there for a while. You know, Fauci was telling everybody they can get AIDS from uh, toilet seats and that sort of thing. So, so that was a kind of a, a deployment of infectious disease as a tool to panic the population. But um, 2020 came along, and they, whatever, pulled out that card, and off we went. You know, the, the, we know for a fact now that SARS-CoV-2, as a strain of a coronavirus, uh, as a mutation from SARS-1, had been in circulation since, at least since October of 2019, in regular circulation. And nobody paid any attention. But suddenly, middle of March came the next year, and everybody was basically instructed to fly into a panic about it. I mean, I just don't think that our world should work like that. I totally agree. Totally agree. Well, Jeffrey Tucker, I really appreciate your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for for being with And If Love Remains. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. You are listening to End of Love Remain. The first of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. Trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization to die.